So tonight, millions and millions of people are going to gather together in their living rooms to watch the season premiere of Game of Thrones. Okay, um, I know, like, I probably shouldn't be talking about Game of Thrones on the pulpit, but um, everyone's been asking me, hey, Randy, are you going to watch Game of Thrones on Sunday? I'm like, I don't watch Game of Thrones, right? Kevin DeYoung told me not to, so I'm not going to watch it, right? But, like, the thing is, um, obviously, if you don't know the show, there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of popularity. The show has a huge following, and I bet you, like, maybe some of you are going to watch it tonight, which is fine. Um, I think for me, like, I just asked this question, right? Um, why do we enjoy Game of Thrones, right? There's a lot of great TV shows, and Game of Thrones is probably recognized as one of the best, right? Um, I think the reason why we love this show so much is because the narrative is so good, right? Uh, it's the plot, it's the suspense, it's the cliffhangers, right? So I've never, I, so I don't watch Game of Thrones. I've only heard about it in passing. But I know that the show is all about the pursuit and the corruption of power, right? Um, all the different characters that we see in the series or in the book, um, they're all trying to pursue power in some shape or form so that they can ultimately move closer to the throne, right? That's what's called Game of Thrones. And they'll do the ugliest thing to get there, right? Um, now, obviously, if we look at all the different films we've watched in the past, if we look at all the stories we've read, all the books, um, they all have a narrative, right? There's a plot, there's a buildup, there's suspense, there's a climax, there's cliffhangers, and there's resolution. But there's a reason why stories like Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and dare I say, Naruto, right? I said Naruto in a sermon, yes. Um, there's a reason why these stories and these shows, right, whether if it's real-life drama or anime, are so popular, right? The reason why they're so popular is because I think as humans... We love the narrative of crowning kings, right? We love to crown kings. Um, the narrative of crowning kings satisfies this longing that we have for hope, this longing that we have for a savior. And for thousands and thousands of years, no matter what culture you're from, there have been all these different types of stories, fables, legends, written and told from both the Western world and the Eastern world about crowning kings, who would fulfill this inner desire of hope that we have. So why do we love these narratives so much, right? Why are these stories so successful? Why do they outsell other movies and books? It's because there's something powerful about these narratives that we can relate to. Because deep down inside, I believe that we have this innate desire to crown someone or to crown something as king. All these narratives expose that deep down inside, we're searching for a hero. And I think the reality is this. We're created to crown, right? We are created to worship. We are created with this capacity for awe. We have this ability to be amazed, to be in wonder, right? We have this ability to understand beauty. And with all of this, we want to ascribe all this worth, value, and beauty to a king, that's what's going on in our hearts. And it's so funny because if we look all throughout the Bible, we see the Bible show different types of portraits of who God is. We see, for instance, God as our shepherd, right? 
God is our shepherd. We are his sheep. He takes care of us, right? We see God as our father, right? As a loving father, God will provide for us as his children. We even see God as our spouse. He loves us as the bridegroom loves his bride. But today, we're going to see a unique portrait of God. We're going to see that God is the true king that we've been searching for. God, as our king, rules over us. And we're going to look at the implications of him being our king. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn them to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be reading the triumphal entry, and this is the passage for Palm Sunday. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 40, Luke chapter 19, verses 28. I'll read for us, and you can follow along. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. Verse 31, If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, um, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Verse 36, And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is our passage for today. So we see here that Jesus is entering Jerusalem, right? Jesus and his disciples are entering Jerusalem. And by this time, this is his last week of ministry. Because five days later, right, on Friday, he's going to go to the cross. Luke gives us an inter- interesting description. He, Jesus enters the village but not only does he enter the village, he enters in a really interesting way. Verse 30, right, he says to his disciples, hey, guys, you're going to find a colt tied in the village right up in front. When you find it, untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone asks, why are you taking the colt? Answer like this. Tell them that the Lord needs it, right? So now the word used for colt in the original language refers to a young animal. But when we look at the other Gospels, we see that this refers to a young donkey. So I have this question then. Why is Jesus entering Jerusalem on a young donkey? This is kind of weird, right? Um, why not just walk in normally as he did in the other villages when he was doing ministry? Right? What's the significance of this? The reason is because Jesus is making a statement to the crowd. Right? Jesus is making a statement to Jerusalem. He's pretty much saying by entering in this fashion on a young donkey, he's saying that the king that you've been waiting for, the king that was promised centuries ago from the time of David, has finally arrived. And it's me. It's Jesus. 
Jesus is pretty much saying, I am your king. I am here to save you. And thus they say, Hosanna, right? But I'm not going to be a king that you desire me to be. I'm not going to come in a domineering way. I'm not going to come by declaring war. I'm coming in humility, mounted on a donkey. And this is interesting because the Pharisees are skeptical, right? But the crowd, on the other hand, they were excited. They were so excited, right? The disciples are worshiping and they're celebrating the arrival of the king that they longed and hoped for. And so here we are, Palm Sunday. And the message of today is very clear and simple. And it's this. Jesus is king. That's the message of Palm Sunday. Jesus is king. So here's what we learn from our passage. I just have two points for us. The first thing is this. Jesus as king challenges our expectations. Jesus as king challenges our expectations. Let me explain. So Jesus, right, he comes as a humble servant rather than a conquering king. Now, why is Jesus going through all this trouble with a donkey, right? Because kings typically do not ride on donkeys. What do they ride on? They ride on war horses, right? Um, can you imagine, like, Jon Snow or, like, Aragorn, right, from Lord of the Rings, riding on a donkey? We're going to kill you guys, right? No, that doesn't look, like, scary. That doesn't look intimidating, right? They're on these, like, crazy scary horses, horses with, like, red eyes, right? Um, why, why donkey, right? Don't, isn't that so, like, weird and interesting? You see, the reason why Jesus is on a donkey is because he's making a statement of humility, right? Jesus entering on a donkey into Jerusalem is a fulfillment of what was promised 500 years ago from that time, right? Uh, this comes from the passage in Zechariah 9.9, and it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, look, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. And here it is. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What was the mission of Jesus? Why did God the Father send Jesus into the world? Out of the Father's love, out of his desire to keep his promises for millennia, the Father sent his one and only Son to die on the cross so that whoever believes in his Son, Jesus, will not perish and have eternal life. Right? That's the message of the gospel. That's why Jesus was sent. That was his mission on earth. Jesus' mission was to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. But what we see from the crowd is something completely different. They were expecting something else. Both the disciples and the Pharisees, right, the opponents of Jesus, they wanted freedom. They wanted prosperity, right? They wanted Israel to go back to the days of David and Solomon when they were a great kingdom. They were respected by other nations. And this is why the disciples freaked out when Jesus says, hey, um, I'm going to die actually, right? When Jesus predicted his death, they freaked out, right? They didn't want Jesus to die. And all in all, what we see here and their expectation is that they wanted a king to fit their criteria, right? Israel wanted a king to fit their criteria. But here's the thing. If Jesus is king, we can't define his roles. 
right? We can't give him roles, right? We can't force him to fit our criteria, but rather, if he's truly king, we have to fit to his criteria, don't we? We have to mold to him. We have to submit to him. Now, if I examine myself personally, right, and the crowd in this passage, I see a lot of similarities. I want to give Jesus roles, right? Um, I want to assign Jesus certain duties for my own benefit. And just like the crowd, I want Jesus to fit my expectations, right? I want Jesus to be the savior that I want him to be, and I do this in the most subtlest ways without even knowing. Yes, of course, I want Jesus to forgive me, right? I want Jesus to make me righteous. I want Jesus to give me salvation and to grow me, to sanctify me, to make me more in his own image. But I also want Jesus to free me from my pain, right? I want Jesus to free me from my circumstances, right? I want Jesus to work out my uncertainties. I want Jesus to give me clarity. Jesus, give me this, give me that. Now, it's not wrong to ask for these things, but I realize something. For me, there is a danger in wanting Jesus to do things for me more than wanting Jesus himself. Do you see that? The past couple years for me, um, they have been one of the most painful. Um, like, it's really hard. And I really do not remember the last time I felt so, like, wounded. Um, but thankfully, I think God has provided, you know, for me through the church, right? And, you know, special thanks to my life group and to the brothers and to the leadership um, that's always been there for me and constantly giving me support and encouragement. Um, it's been so painful for me. And the interesting thing um, that I realize is this. Um, the pain did, right, the pain in my life, the pain that came out of my circumstances, it did lead me to pray more, right? I did pray more, right? I did depend on God more. But here's what I caught myself doing in my prayers. Do you do this sometimes? God, you owe me. God, you owe me a new season. God, you owe me recompense for the past couple of years, right? These years were horrible. Um, you owe me a change, right? You owe me years of blessings and reaping. And what I realized is pain led to victimization, right? And victimization led to entitlement. And I realized the moment we feel so entitled before Jesus is the moment we've crowned something else as our king. The moment we say, Jesus, you owe me this, you owe this life change, is the moment where we decided that there is something more valuable than Jesus. When I look at this passage, and I wanna, when I was just reflecting upon it this past couple of weeks, this passage is challenging my expectations of Jesus and revealing how deceitfully and selfish my heart is. Of course, you know, it's good to be honest with myself, right? It's good to be honest with my feelings, right? God desires our honesty, right? He wants us to be real with him, right? Not to come fake. But we have to constantly re-examine ourselves through the lens of the gospel, and so I have to remind myself, if Jesus is king, then my expectations must change. His will doesn't conform to mine, but rather, my will conforms to his. And that's our first point. Jesus as king, he challenges our expectations. Here's, here's our second point. Jesus as king demands a polarizing response. Right? So first, he challenges our expectations. Number two, Jesus as king, he demands a polarizing response. 
if Jesus appears to you, you have one of two options. You crown him or you kill him. There is no middle. There is no in-between. There is no neutrality. And if we look at the story, right, from the biblical context, we see polarizing responses, right? The response of the disciples is what? It's worship. They rejoice. They're praising God. They're crowning him as king. They're pleading, save us, right? Hosanna. But from the Pharisees, we see a completely different polarizing response. We have to kill him. He's a threat to us. He's a threat to Israel. This is important to know because we can't give him only some parts of our lives. Right? For example, uh, we can't come to God and be like, um, let's negotiate. Okay? Uh, I'll give you Sundays right? when I'm at church. Easy. But Monday through Friday is for work. Saturday is like the only true weekend I have, right? And that's just for my pleasure. So I'll give you Sunday, right? No, it, it doesn't work like that, right? We can't say, I'll give you family, right? You can have my family. But when it comes to work and leisure, that's my own. Because if Jesus is king, then he has reign over all of our days. He has reign over all of the different aspects of our lives. It's all or nothing. We can't have one foot in and one foot out. You know, this is why um, polytheism doesn't work, right? Because it's contradicting, right? This is why uh, we look down on people, right, driving the cars with the what? The coexist stickers, right? I mean, we, we judge them hardcore. I judge them. I'm like, what the heck, dude? That's such a, like, contradiction. Why would you, like, do that, right? This is why polygamy doesn't work because it's unfair, right? I mean, if you had three wives or three husbands, I mean, shoot, you don't have to pay for daycare, right? You can have, like, triple income, quadruple income, not double income, Right? But at the same time, you know, someone's going to be getting the shorter end, right? Someone will always feel jealous, right? We were meant to have loyalty with one person, right? This is why we don't have two presidents because that's just so confusing, right? Imagine, imagine if both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were our president. We had two presidents, right? The nation would go into a frenzy, right? It doesn't work like that. You know, this is why there's always an organizational head, right? This is why there's CEOs, there's presidents. And what I'm trying to say is we're designed to have different priorities in our relationships. There's always a first. So parents, let me ask you, what's more important, feeding your kids or getting tacos with me? The answer is obvious. Getting tacos with me right now, I'm just totally kidding, right? Um, obviously, as parents, you have the responsibility to take care of your kid first, right? And on the other hand, it would be extremely irresponsible to leave your wife or to leave your husband behind and be like, I'm going to go to L.A. I'm going to go to Avenue 26 right now, right? We have priorities in our relationships. The reason why the response is so polarizing is because no matter what, we're going to crown someone or something as king. That's just the natural inclination of our heart. If it isn't Jesus... Guess what? It's going to be something else or someone else. We will always have a number one. We cannot serve two masters equally. It's all or nothing. All right, Tim Keller, he talked about this, and he said this. We all live for something to give us meaning and significance. And whatever we live for, it does not serve us. We serve it. And since we serve it, guess what? It has authority over our lives so if you want to have meaning in life, you're going to have to live for something. 
and whatever you live for to give you meaning in life, that is what you have crowned as your king because you serve it. And he said this, um, your problems are because the things that you have crowned in your life are oppressing you, right? The problem that we have is that we're crowning the wrong kings. We're crowning lesser things that are not meant to be kings as kings, so we become oppressed. So our solution then is to crown the right king, right? So how can we crown Jesus as a true king of our lives? Right? How can we crown him as king? And here's our application. Um, I have three of us, uh, three for us today. <laughs> three of us. I'm not the Trinity. Um, so we have three applications today, okay? Um, here's the first one. Worship him. Simple. Worship him. Um, if we look at the, the disciples' response, right, verse 37, they're rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice. And they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're worshiping God. And, you know, when we look at our lives, we worship in two ways. We worship individually and we worship corporately. Right? Um, individually, we worship through our work, we worship through our relationships, through our families, through our friends, through our coworkers. We worship in our own personal devotional times, right? when we read the word, when we pray, right? when we practice the disciplines. But in addition to worshiping individually, we also worship corporately as a church together. We do this, like right now, Sunday service. Right? I don't know if you know it or not, but you guys sitting here on the pews, we're, we're worshiping together. We're worshiping as a church. As we're hearing the word of God, we are participating in worship collectively together as a church, right? We do this during our praise and prayer gatherings, right, on Saturday, right? We do this during the workshop when we study the word together. And so in light of this application, right, to worship him, right, how do we crown him as king? Number one, worship him. Uh, I want to challenge you to this, church. Um, come to Passion Week prayer and worship and worship corporately together, right? As Joe announced earlier, um, Monday through Friday, right, including Good Friday service, we're going to be meeting from 8 to 9-ish. And from that time, we're going to have a time to just look at the word together, to examine it, to sing songs of praise, to pray together as a church. And we do this corporately, right? And I want to challenge you guys. I know work is busy. Uh, I know you're just so tired, right? And you just want to go straight to eating and watching your shows before you sleep. Um, but I want to challenge us, you know, and I'm going to make this my challenge as well. Um, let's deepen our appetite as a church together um, this Passion Week uh, by attending, you know, um, what we're going to be doing from Monday through Friday, right? That's the first thing, worship him. So how can we crown Jesus as a true king of our lives? Number one, worship him. Number two, obey him. So Jesus, in this story, he says to his, he says to his disciples, right, uh, bring me the colt, right? And they're like, okay, right? Uh, and the disciples, right, they say to the people in the town, uh, Jesus needs a colt. And they're like, okay, right? No questions asked, right? I wish I had that type of authority, right? Like, like get me a burrito. Okay, you know, like, and it's done, boom. Um, Jesus has this authority, right? And, you know, if you look at this, like, this um, conversation, Right, and wanting to get a right, the, the colt or the young donkey, um, there's no questions asked. Right? The disciples aren't like, wait, what happens if they say no? Wait, where do I go? 
like, do you want me to go, like, 20 yards in, east, 30 yards west? Like, where, where, do, where do you want me to go? How do you want me to do this? No questions. They just say, okay, I will obey. And they do it. And the funny thing is, the non-disciples who own the cult, they're just like, okay, the Lord needs it, right? Very simple. But here's the thing that I'm trying to address. Obedience is hard, right? Obedience is so hard. It's so hard when it doesn't make sense. It's hard to be obedient when things don't make sense. It's hard to be obedient when there's no clarity. It's hard to be obedient when it goes against our own desires and our own preferences, doesn't it? It's hard to be obedient when we don't get the blessing, right? It's hard to be obedient when you know that it's going to bring you pain. Obedience is hard, right? And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's hard, and that is probably the toughest battle that we're engaging as Christians, right? To be obedient, to live a life of faith. But um, again, with, you know, in light of Passion Week, I want to challenge you to this. This week, before you step into where God has called you, at work, at school, or at home, this week, right, before you go into your roles, before you go into your responsibilities, um, number one, lay down your anxieties, your fears, your doubts, and your uncertainties before him. And after you do that, take a short moment and ask God, this question, just one question, right? Before you go into work, right? Before you engage your family, before you study, before you go to class, ask this one question to God. How can I say yes to you today? God, how can I say yes to you today? And if we do this, you know, if we do this for a week, um, see what happens. You know, I'm sure God will provide opportunities for obedience and his spirit will guide and help us. The ways we can be more obedient as a church is to ask for those opportunities. So, you know, um, I challenge you guys as a church this week, before we step into work, let's ask, God, how can I say yes to you today? Right, that's the second thing. So how do we crown Jesus? Uh, we worship him, we obey him, and lastly, expect great things from him. Right, number one, worship him. Number two, obey him. And lastly, number three, expect great things from him. Both the disciples and the Pharisees, they wanted Jesus to come as a conquering king, right? They wanted the Messiah to be this legit warrior um, who's a conquering king, and that's what they expected Jesus to do in this triumphal entry. They wanted a military kingdom, right? They wanted freedom. They wanted prominence. And Jesus was well aware of their expectations and desires, Right? I could totally imagine him thinking this. Oh, you want that? You want all that? Just you wait. Right? You want a military kingdom? I want to give you something better. I'm going to bring you into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Oh, you want freedom? You want freedom from Rome? I'm going to give you, so much, so I'm going to give you something way better than that. I'm going to give you freedom from sin. You want prominence? You want the world to recognize you? Guess what? I'm going to give you something greater than that. The God of all creation, with the greatest authority, will look at you and call you his own. You are accepted, and he will treat you as if you are his own child. And surely, Jesus is saying the same thing to us, right? I will shatter your expectations and do something great. You can't even think about what I'll do next. You want a spouse? 
Just you wait. I'm going to give you something greater. Right? You want that financial security? Just you wait. I'm going to do something greater. You want fill in the blank? Just you wait. I'm going to do something greater. And I truly believe, you know, the more I spend time with God, the more I engage in the Lord, I believe that God has something great in store for all of us. Now, it might not come in the form of money, right? I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel, right? It's not going to come in the form of materialism. Maybe it might sometimes. It's not going to come in the form of relationships. It might not come based on our timing or the way that we want it. But I do believe that it will come through his presence. One of the Bible's main message as a whole, if we look at the scripture, is hope. And church, we must fight to have hope every single day. All the New Testament authors, right, they're all trying to point their audience to hope because the churches that are receiving these letters or these, you know, gospel accounts, they're going through persecution. They're going through tribulation. They're suffering. They're in pain. And really, what the authors are doing inspired by the Spirit himself is to tell them we have this hope. We have this hope waiting for us. That one day we will be at a place where we belong. Right? We're going to be at a place where there's no more sin, no more suffering, no more shame, no more guilt, no more pain. There's a promise that we will be fully restored and our hearts will experience the greatest blessing in being face-to-face with Jesus. And every other good or blessing that we experience on this side of eternity really is a dim shadow of things to come. So church, as we enter into Passion Week, as we reflect on this powerful truth that not only is Jesus is king, but it's good that Jesus is king, right? as we anticipate the greatest victory coming to us on Easter, let us set our hearts to our king. Let us crown him. Let us worship him. Let us obey him. And let us expect great things from him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that in Christ you love us so much. And we thank you for the fact that Jesus being the perfect son, um, the one who was completely obedient, Um, God, you will bestow upon him honor and glory and power. And one day we do believe, as the scriptures say, that people from all tribes, tongues, and nations will come together and in unison we will worship Jesus as king. We will celebrate Jesus as being the lamb that was slain. And we will declare holy, holy, holy. That is a hope that we want to look to, God. And I think even for myself, would you reorient my heart to that hope? And I pray that as a church, um, would you lead us, God? In your kingly reign, in your kingly authority, would you lead our church and may the gates of hell not prevail against us? And as you promised your disciples on the hill to make disciples, help us to take comfort in the fact that you are with us to the very end of ages. Our hope is in you, Jesus. Be our king. Help us this week to worship you, to obey you, and to expect great things from you. That is our prayer. We love you. We give you all the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.